listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's season three of Ohio V the World, the world's only Ohio history podcast. And I am your host, Alex Hasty. So good to be back with you guys. Uh, and we've got an awesome season planned. Really looking forward to it. We're starting with our first episode here about Neil Armstrong called Ohio vs. the Moon. Uh, next week, and on Friday, October 19th, we hope to see at our launch party, our season three launch party. Anyone who's been to any of our previous launch parties knows how fun those are. Cash Bar will be in Grandview at the Columbus Italian Club. All our listeners are welcome. Uh, dinner will be there. will be a buffet dinner. Um, first come, first serve on that from the Berwick Manor. Great Italian food. We're just asking for a $5 donation. All proceeds go to our nonprofit to promote Ohio history across the state. So we had an awesome summer. We joined the board of the Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society. We're very excited. We'll talk more about that as this episode goes on, as this season goes on. Since we joined the Ohio History Connection here in Columbus, we found that they actually manage 58 sites across the state. I'm on the sites committee. I'm trying to visit all 58 of those here in the next year or so. But one of those 58 sites is the Armstrong Air and Space Museum in Wapakoneta, Ohio. The county seat of Glaze County in northwest Ohio is the hometown of Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. So we went out today, and that's where we did our interviews. We did kind of a roundtable discussion uh, with three really leading Neil Armstrong experts. And we had an awesome time in, in, in Wapakoneta. We were actually there just last night for the premiere. They had a big premiere of the movie First Man, which comes out the same day as this podcast is hitting the airwaves, um, starring Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. And a big feature film that comes out. It looks fantastic. We were there last night. Um, for the, the premiere in Wapakoneta as the guests of, of the Armstrong Air and Space Museum. Uh, big fundraiser up there to raise money. We had a big outdoor dinner, tent, uh, and then actually went and saw the movie um, in the down the old historic theater in, in Wapakoneta. So really fun times. Thanks again to them. Our beer for the episode, we are drinking the Binary Star Black IPA from our friends at Land Grant Brewing here in Columbus. You can check their tap room out on West Town Street, in Franklinton, LandGrantBrewing.com. The Binary Star Black IPA, 7.8%, but it's got, you know, it's a dark beer, dark IPA, black IPA, but it's got these kind of citrusy floral finishes that I love in my uh, in my pale ales. Um, but it's also got that dark malt, almost like a caramel-like, you know, smell to it. So check it out. It's part of their Space Grant series. Uh, Land Grant will be providing all the beer for our launch party Friday, October 19th. We'll be drinking Land Grant beers, uh, and all our listeners are invited to that at the Columbus Italian Club in Grandview. Today we're talking about Neil Armstrong. We'll go down as the biggest, most famous person from Ohio. When you say two, three hundred years from now, who will they remember? They're not going to remember Rutherford B. Hayes. They're not going to remember Warren G. Harding, 
but they will remember Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. We went to Wapakoneta to do a roundtable interview. And you ask, you know, we were off for five months. It's been five months since our last episode um, to end season two, our live episode from the Columbus Podcast Festival. And we asked, well, what have you been doing? First of all, I love my springs and summers off. Um, but also we're researching. Because I got to know my stuff. When I walk into a room with people like Greg Brown, the experience coordinator at the Armstrong Air and Space Museum, or the Brittany Venturella, the interim director up at Armstrong Air and Space, or in our friend who hooked all this up, Craig Noble, he's a board member up at the uh, at the Armstrong Air and Space Museum in Wapakoneta. I got to know what I'm talking about because these three know it all, and they were awesome to sit down with. They were super gracious with their time. They took me through the museum, which was fantastic. Armstrongmuseum.org. You gotta go see it. A great little couple hours uh, that you can spend there. They're doing an expansion. We'll talk about all the new and exciting stuff that's going on there, and of course, you know all the interest with the movie with First Man and Ryan Gosling. We'll talk about when he came to the museum with Brittany uh, doing his research for the film. And I urge you to go see it. It is an awesome movie. It's a blockbuster feature film made about Ohio history. So you know I'm going to be down with it. Uh, we had so much fun at the premiere last night. Because this moon event on July 20th, 1969, Sunday night, primetime TV, when Neil Armstrong steps off around 10 p.m. Eastern. You've got to understand the importance to the people who saw it. It was a moment where we all came together, everyone across the world, through the magic of television and the magic of science and exploration, shared this immense moment in human history. So we're going to play it, some of that for you as it, was, as it was on TV, as people crowded around television sets all over the world. But without further ado, it's time to buckle up. It's a liftoff of Season 3. It's Episode 1, Ohio vs. the Moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Columbia, Columbia, this is your turn, hey, let's go. Neil Armstrong's born in 1930 just outside of Wapakoneta in the kind of New Knoxville or St. Mary's, Ohio area. About an hour north of, of Dayton and about 90 minutes northwest of Columbus. And one of our guests today, uh, Greg, Craig Noble, his grandfather actually was a doctor who delivered Neil Armstrong. Um, and Craig is, has lived in the area all his life. He's a, an attorney, a board member at the Armstrong Air and, Sp uh, Air and Space Museum. And he told us the story of, of the young Neil Armstrong. But what was it about this part of Ohio? You have the, the Wright brothers from just down the road in Dayton. Go back and listen to season one, episode eight, our episode Ohio versus Flight. You know, Neil actually brought a piece of the Wright Flyer on his trip to the moon. We'll play a clip from, from one of our favorite historians, David McCullough, about this area of western Ohio. Well, there's something particularly American about the Ohio story. And it's, um, when you look at who came from Ohio and what they did, it's uh, quite remarkable. Presidents, inventors, and there's a, a strange coincidence, maybe it isn't a coincidence, that the first human being ever to fly in a, in a flying machine, Orville Wright, and the first human being ever to set foot on the moon came from the same section 
of southwestern Ohio, Neil Armstrong. And, and then, of course, John Glenn also came from Ohio, as did Edison, as did numerous other people in that very protein time. Brittany Venturella joined us as well. She's the interim director of Armstrong Air and Space. And we asked her just about his first flight. The Armstrongs moved around, uh, mostly around Ohio. But we asked about his first flight as a child. Neil Armstrong's first flight was in Warren, Ohio. His father took him, instead of going to Sunday school because the rates were cheaper in the morning, they took their flight in a Ford Trimotor. And uh, as his father tells it, Neil thoroughly enjoyed his experience, and perhaps that was one of the defining moments of his love of aviation. And so he was how old? So Just shy of his sixth birthday. Yeah, close yeah. to six years old. But Neil is pretty clearly a special kid. In one of the examples, he, he moves back to Wapakoneta when he's about 14. He goes to the high school there downtown. The museum's got a bunch of great stuff from his yearbook and from his childhood. But one of the weird things that he did that kind of showed that he was going to be a different kid when it comes to science and engineering, he built his own wind tunnel at his house. He'd do tests and, and put little planes in this wind tunnel that he built. Um, it was pretty serious. We ask, we ask uh, our guests about, about the wind tunnel. We also ask about, you know, is it true that he got his pilot's license before he ever got his driver's license? Uh, yes, it is true that he built a wind tunnel, and it was actually in the basement of his Benton Street home during his high school years. It wasn't necessarily for a school project, but it shows that he was not only interested in piloting, but really the engineering behind it. And it was made up of junk or spare parts that he put together and it would have had four small fans and he was working on a rheostat that would change the electrical current to make the fan spin slower or faster so that there was different air flow through the tunnel and the story goes that they blew several fuses and according to a family member he put a penny in one of the fuses at one point just so that they, he could keep experimenting with it as well. So do you have like a little plane in there that he built or? So he would have had different planes different that he planes. would have wow. flown through. I think throughout his life he continued to build models even when he was an astronaut. That yeah. was one of his passions. Well he began taking lessons at Port Canita with a group and they called themselves the Port Canita Gang. It was just a dirt, basically a dirt strip, a hard packed dirt uh, airstrip. Uh, and so he gets that and then gets his driver's license later? Later. He got his license on his his, uh, what do you call it, student license at age 16 on his 16th birthday. His pilot's license. Yep, so August 5th of 1946. Wow. And he learned to fly in an Oronka Champion, which was made in Middletown. Middletown, Ohio. And there would have been one of two at the airport, and we actually have on display the one that he learned to fly in. Neil graduates and moves to northwest Indiana and goes to Purdue University, a Big Ten school, the Boilermakers, known for their for to be a great engineering school. But part of it was he had to get it part, as part of a scholarship with the Navy. He quickly gets called up in 1949 after a couple years at Purdue, and he becomes a pilot. And just a year later, the country goes to war in Korea. President Truman declares war after the North Koreans invade South Korea in 1950. 
we ask our guest Greg Brown, the, the, the Greg Brown, the experience coordinator um, at, at Armstrong Air and Space, just about his experience in Korea and how he became a top pilot and how on his dozens of missions over the skies of North Korea nearly lost his life. And he started at Purdue right out of high school, but in 1949, he was brought on board, uh, no pun intended, uh, to, uh, to train as an aviator. And uh, once he finished his training in Pensacola, he was assigned to a squadron, VF-51. And that squadron was then placed on the USS Essex, and the Essex sailed for uh, the Pacific. And so the Essex uh, served, I think, three tours or three cruises. During uh, that conflict, <clears throat> Neil's uh, job was to fly, basically, ground attack uh, missions in an F-9F Panther. That was his squadron. They all flew Panthers, uh, the same aircraft that uh, John Glenn actually flew as a Marine. So anyway, those uh, F-9Fs were not really suitable for uh, uh, dogfighting very much, so they were relegated to that ground attack role. So Neil, uh, flying those kind of missions, he ended up flying a total of 78 combat missions in that aircraft. Wow. And uh, the crisis that you know we're, we're kind of interested in uh, came in September of 1951. And at this time, he was flying through the Wonsan Valley. Wonsan is a port city on the uh, eastern coast of North Korea. <clears throat> and uh, he's flying through this valley, and his aircraft strikes a cable that had been strung up there by the enemy. Uh, there are some. There are various uh, stories as to how this damage occurred. Many uh, stories say that he was hit by anti-aircraft or flak. Uh, some say he hit a pole. Actually, those are not true. According to Neil, uh, he was uh, he was simply flying through the valley, strikes a cable. The cable is strung up about 500 feet off the deck, as that's about the altitude he was. He was moving at about 350 miles per hour, and the F-9F, if we as we just saw, it's not a big airplane, so those wings are not very long. He strikes this cable with his right wing, and it slices off six feet of that wing. Just a good third or a half of that wing. Yeah, I would think. So here he is. He's moving that fast. He strikes the cable. He loses six feet of his wing, and at that point, he's lost uh, his wing tank. He's lost some hydraulic fluid. And the distance between where he was and where he ended up eventually uh, coming back and uh, uh, ejecting was significant. Uh, there was a decent amount of uh, space in between those two places. So he's able to kind of hang on to the aircraft, fight the stick, keep it from rolling over, and he's able to pilot it back over uh, Pohang, which is a southern port city on the same side of the, of the country. So he punches out at that point. He, his intent was to land in the ocean. He's a naval aviator. They always want to land in the water. But the prevailing wind blew him on to the coast, and he lands in a rice paddy on his tailbone. Uh, so very, very quickly he was picked up, and he uh, avoided landing in North Korea and being captured or being killed. So, uh, but very hairy uh, because I don't know, you know, how what the average pilot would have been able to do. But um, I have a feeling that that was a very difficult thing to do. You know, they were they were flying very dangerous missions. They weren't dogfighting, but these ground attack missions ran into a lot of anti-aircraft yes, files and how they were would go in and attack these bridges and railroad yards, but they'd have extreme flag. And eventually they developed a system of doing it that was a lot safer, and Neil was involved in that. Following the war, he finishes at Purdue. He marries Janet Sheeran. Janet would be his wife well into the 1990s. Uh, she's played by Claire Foy in the movie First Man. Uh, you might remember her as Queen Elizabeth in The Crown, a great British actress. Uh, and she does a wonderful job in the movie and, and has a major role. As the movie is a lot about family as well. He takes a job in Cleveland. It's a research job, uh, but he's flying. He's a research pilot, a test pilot. He takes a job in Cleveland at the Great Lakes, which now is called the 
Glenn Research Center. It's a NASA facility in Cleveland, Ohio, the Glenn Research Center. We asked Greg about, about his time in Cleveland on the North Coast and how his job as a test pilot began his journey to become an astronaut and the first man to land on the lunar surface. Yes, he was only there four or five months. Uh, he was originally assigned as an aeronautical research pilot. Uh, so his, his intent was to get into uh, test piloting, and he obviously was, wants to do some engineering, but he wants to do a lot of flying as well. So he's unfortunately, um, maybe unfortunately, he spent a lot of time investigating new anti-icing systems for aircraft up there. He also uh, studied high Mach number heat transfer. He was flying a, a very strange aircraft, a, a P-82, which is a twin Mustang. Instead of a P-51, it's a, it's a P-82. And they carried a solid rocket underneath. And they were doing a lot of research. So he did a lot of number crunching, a lot of analyzing data, a lot of charts and graphs. And he was designing components for some of these uh, new uh, pieces of equipment. So he enjoyed that. But when he heard about what was going on at Edwards with the X-15 and some of these other experimental aircraft, that really got his attention. He thought, I want to be a part of that. But Cleveland's kind of his first almost NASA job. Yes, right? it was. In the early to mid-1950s, test pilots were, were all the rage. Chuck Yeager, breaking the speed of sound, the, you know, going Mach 2, uh, the right stuff. Neil Armstrong was there. He takes a job at Edwards Air Force Base as a test pilot, and he's one of the best ever. But it's an incredibly dangerous job. Not really the kind of job where you can get life insurance you know, as an astronaut or as a test pilot. We talked to, to Greg about, about the dangers of being a test pilot in the 1950s with his experimental jet aircrafts, rockets, um, really the beginning of the space program. In the year 1952 alone, at Edwards alone, this is, comes from first man, 62 test pilots were killed wow. in one year. So it's really hazardous, test piloting. And so you might say, and, and this is, I think, uh, true to some degree, that test piloting is actually more challenging in some ways than astronaut flying is, simply because by the time a human being sits in a spacecraft, that spacecraft has been tested and retested. It has been put through the ringer. Neil's flying the X-15, this rocket-powered uh, airplane. It, it's just going crazy speeds, 4,000 miles an hour, Neil almost hits. There's a great scene in, in the film. Neil nearly leaves the Earth on one of these X-15s. We talked to Greg about that, about that fateful day when he almost looked like he was going to leave the atmosphere. He was so high up that he, he can see space, that he can see over the horizon blackness, not the sun or the blue of the sky. As our guest, Greg Brown, informs us, Armstrong and the X-15 didn't have the exit velocity to actually leave the Earth and eventually, eventually would come down. The X-15 was a very special aircraft uh, designed to basically push the envelope and uh, learn a whole bunch of new things about, you know, obviously high altitude flight, very, very high velocity flight. So it literally had a rocket engine. That engine produced about 50,000 pounds of thrust. But it was used for these types of tests. And as a matter of fact, uh, Neil ended up flying that type of aircraft uh, seven different times. His max speed was 4,000, well, just a tad under 4,000 miles per hour. His max altitude was 39 statute miles. That's about 207,000 feet. Uh, at that altitude, the air is really, it's not non-existent. There is still some air there, but it's so thin that your wings, your control surfaces no longer work. So it had to be equipped with little thrusters. 
and uh, it was actually carried underneath a B-52 wing, one of the pylons, and it would be released, and then it would ignite the rocket engine and really soar up there in an arc, uh, basically to the edge of the atmosphere, and it would return. Uh, the, the missions were typically very short. Sometimes they were as short as 10 minutes or so. So it was April 20th of 62, uh, so this is just, you know, the earlier part of the year before he became an astronaut. So what he wanted to do was test the something called the MH-96G limiter. And the G limiter was what it was supposed to, what it sounds like. It was supposed to limit the amount of Gs that the pilot experienced to no more than five Gs. <clears throat> so he takes off, he, you know, he drops from the, uh, underneath the wing of the uh, aircraft, he ignites the rocket engine, and he just climbs. And as he's climbing, he's watching this G limiter. And the G limiter was supposed to kick in at five Gs, well, it didn't kick in. So he keeps watching it, he keeps watching it. Meanwhile, he's climbing and climbing. He's, he's really, really reaching a very, very high uh, level in the atmosphere, and the atmosphere now is becoming very, very thin. So at some point, he realizes, wow, um, I might be beyond where I kind of plan to be. Uh, the radio starts coming alive, and the guys on the ground are saying, Neil, hard left turn, hard left turn. And he's thinking, boy, I wish I could. You know, because at this point, they, they said what he was doing was ballooning. His, his aircraft was literally just rising, just descending. It had a lot of inertia, a lot of kinetic energy, and it was just moving, just kept climbing. So here's the problem. He's got, like, no air to grab on. He's got no air. So what he does is he's, he's firing his thrusters. Now, the thrusters are used to roll or pitch or yaw the aircraft, but that's assuming you have enough air to grab into. He had not enough air. He couldn't do anything about it. He was on a, an inertial pathway. He was just, if he yawed the aircraft, he was still going in a straight line. There's not enough air for him to get a bite, so he can't control it. So he's literally floating up there further and further. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. JFK makes that speech, a commencement speech at Rice University in Houston, during the height of the Cold War. The space race really was the ultimate proving ground for the Cold War. Uh, and we'll actually do an episode with our friend Bruce Carlson from one of our favorite shows, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, called Ohio vs. the Cold War. We'll do that one later this season. But JFK, he challenges America to land on the moon before the decade is done, the decade, as Kennedy says in his Boston accent. But in truth, in 1962, we were far, far from being able to put anyone on the moon or even the Apollo program. We were way behind the Soviets who'd launched Sputnik first, who'd put a man in space first, who'd put a man in orbit first. At that time, it was a pipe dream that in nearly seven years, we could put something like this together. Following the Mercury program, when men like Alan Shepard did leave Earth, we talked to to our roundtable about 
when Neil joins the NASA Astronaut Corps after getting a call from Deke Slayton. Neil joined the astronauts coming off personal tragedy when his two-year-old daughter, Karen, died of brain cancer. That same year, Neil decided to follow his dreams and joined the New Nine when he joined NASA's Gemini program. Well, they, it was the in-between stage between Mercury and Apollo. And the ba- one of the basic goals of the, of the Gemini program was to uh, master the rendezvous and docking uh, procedures. And Mercury was really like a just try to leave Earth type of program, Correct. right? Okay. Get our feet wet and expose the astronaut to, to orbital operations and see what they can do. Yeah. Okay. And one of the uh, prizes of the museum is the Gemini capsule here. And it's amazing to look at to see how they could live in that for up to two weeks. One mission went that long in that cramped space. It's also worth mentioning that while they were spinning, they would have had limited communication with NASA. So we already mentioned that test pilot um, abilities and how that played in. They had to problem solve very quickly and on their feet. um, Well, I guess sitting in the capsule, (laughs) but. uh, Wait a second, did Brittany say spinning? Yeah, the the Gemini mission does dock with the Agena target vehicle. They meet up. There's claps and cigars at Mission Control. They've done it, and for 27 minutes they are docked with the Agena rocket, running through their tests. But then things start going wrong. So they get hard docked, and then they go about uh, doing some of their procedures uh, that are revolving revolving around uh, joint maneuvers with the two. So they're docked for 27 minutes, and uh, Dave and Neil, uh, Dave and Neil, have their uh, cabin lights on, and they're looking at their checklists, and uh, nothing particular uh, exciting is happening until Dave just happens to look up from his checklist and see that his eight ball, his attitude gyro, is is wobbling around, and he he thinks that's a little odd, so he kind of basically nudges Neil and says, Neil, what's up with this? So Neil says, Well, I don't know that that's kind of anomalous. So they uh, use the ohms, the orbit attitude maneuver system, that's their system of thrusters. And uh, Neil activates that, and he fires some thrusters and basically thinks that's going to be the end of it. They'll stabilize it, and that and they can go on. And as it turned out, um, this problem did not go away. And uh, they realize now they've got something of a major issue because no matter what they do, uh, the two spacecraft are still wobbling, and they're still rolling and spinning. They're not going too fast yet because of all the mass between the two of them. But uh, they made a, a decision that was very fateful. It was nearly uh, the end of them. They looked out their windows, see the Agena, they see the other end of the Agena where the attitude control system is, and it's venting. And it's venting in such a way that it makes them believe perhaps the Agena is, is the cause of this wobbling and spinning. And yet, they also look inside their spacecraft, see the propellant quantity indicator, and they look at that and say, hmm, we were losing propellant too. Right, and, and they weren't spinning before they docked with the Agena. No, they right? were not. So they had no problems until they docked. So now it becomes a question of how do we sort this out, uh, the various causes. What we need to do, they thought, is we'll undock from the Agena and we'll be able to sleuth it out, be able to kind of parse these out and figure out which, which one's causing it. And uh, that was a decision, again, that almost cost them their lives. Because when they made that decision, they both agreed, Dave hit the docking switch after Neil basically uh, neutralized most of the motion for a moment, and then when they separated, Neil hit the forward-facing thrusters, backed off from the Agena, and it immediately became obvious that uh, this was going to be a bad day because now they start spinning faster. Uh, beginning to pick up speed because, again, uh, you no longer have that mass on your nose and you have the same amount of thrust. Now, the sad thing is you can't look on your control panel and see which thruster is firing, if any. 
Uh, that's just not the way it's wired. So the agena was actually stabilizing them? Yes, I mean, it was. Its mass was, yes. And so uh, once they realized this, they knew that their options were narrowing uh, significantly, and they had very, very few choices left. So uh, what, what would, I mean, when you say they had few options left, is that because they eventually keep spinning and pass out and throw right, it away? Right, that, that's the problem. If you continue to spin, uh, you're going to eventually black out. Um, that's not something you want to do because with the Gemini, you can't fly it from the ground. It's not like the Mercury. You can't fly it from the ground. So that becomes a real critical issue, and it turns out that these guys knew they were approaching that point. In fact, Dave says that, uh, yes, we were nearing our physiological limits at that point. So they knew that they had a, just a matter of moments. Call Did he say he could not turn the Agena off? No, he says he is separated from the Agena and he's in a roll and he can't stop it. His right, pre his right pressure is down to zero, his arm is right helium pressure. He's blown both RCS with right. Say again? I hear him say he may have a stuck hand controller. That's not a flight. Not a flight, this is CSQ. We can't seem to get any uh, valid data here. He seems to be in a pretty violent trouble right now. Neil has just seconds to make this decision. As he's spinning out of control, he decides, I don't know how he's able to think. I don't know how he's able to hit the right buttons when he's spinning this fast and his life's on the line. But he makes this fateful decision to activate the re-entry thrusters and boosters. By using that, he can slow the roll, and, but it ends the mission. He has to decide to either try and save his life or continue the mission. I know Dave Scott, who was on, on board with him that day, said, I'm glad I had Neil Armstrong next to me. They arm the re-entry uh, system, and uh, that's in two rings, and that gives them a little bit of redundancy. But that system is not designed for orbital maneuvers whatsoever. Right. There's a limited amount of propellant in there. Uh, the duty cycle is very short, so it's not intended to be used in any other way except steering during re-entry. But there was no choice. So it's a matter of arming the RCS, burning those thrusters for about 10 minutes or so, and neutralizing that spinning. And then once they did that, they stabilized the spacecraft after 25 minutes after the, in fact, I've got, I actually have a little uh, timeline here, just a real quick and dirty one, yeah. okay? Seven hours after launch, the anomaly began, they started rolling. Okay, seven hours, 15 minutes, the undocking was initiated. Seven hours, 16 minutes, they activated the RCS, or the reentry control. Seven hours, 18 minutes, the OMS was deactivated, that major system of thrusters. And then seven hours, 25 minutes, they nulled the rates in all axis, or they stopped the spinning. 
So that's a crazy 10 minutes right That's there. a crazy 10 minutes, <laughs> which they were originally going to land in the, in the Atlantic after three days, and they landed in the Pacific after 10 hours and 41 minutes. Thanks for listening to Ohio v. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. Every episode this season, we're going to have an Ohio History Connection Minute. We'll talk with the people who run the Ohio History Connection. Today, we'll talk with Brittany Venturella, the interim director of Armstrong Air and Space, which, which is one of our 58 sites across the state of Ohio. So exciting to, to do the work that we're doing. I can't wait to share with you some of these projects and really exciting things that are going on uh, with Ohio history. You can always sign up to become a member at ohiohistory.org. Um, and a member gets free admission to places like the Armstrong Museum. Um, it's $8 for adults. It's open every day. In the winter, it's, it's closed on Mondays. But they're open every day about 9.30 to 5. It's right at 33 and 75, where US 33 meets I is 75. Um, and you really got to go and check it out. But they're doing a huge expansion. Very exciting. We talked to Brittany Venturella about the expansion. So we are working to inspire people to go into STEAM, like we were just mentioning. And, and explain what STEAM is. So, so um, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And um, to do that, we are expanding on the north side of our building. We are adding 1,600, a little over 1,600 square feet. 1,300 of that will be dedicated to a classroom, and that will allow us to accommodate more students to come in and explore the museum, and as well as offer activities in robotics and to, to the older students. Right now, we are really strong in our elementary and middle school, but this allows us to, to take it to that next level. And we'll also be expanding digitally as well. We'll have a green screen that our educators can then record lessons and place them online so people across the nation cool. and maybe the world can explore. In 2017, in preparation for the film The First Man, uh, First Man Ryan Gosling and director Damien Chazelle, uh, Damien Chazelle, the youngest Oscar-winning Best Director, for La La Land, also with Ryan Gosling in 2016. But Chazelle and Gosling actually came to Wapakoneta. They met with Brittany Venturella and our guest, Greg Brown, um, and we asked her about that meeting, how cool it was to meet to meet you know two Hollywood bigwigs uh, coming to your museum to talk about Neil Armstrong. And did they know their stuff? Yes, they came last year, and it was a research trip and they toured the museum. Actually, Greg was one of the tour guides. And they. what impressed me was that they did their homework. They did a lot of research so that they knew what questions to ask. They wanted to make sure they got it right with you know what buttons they pressed during the emergency and things like that. So they were very interested in the Gemini capsule. And then we corresponded back and forth on some research requests to make sure they got props accurate. And it was overall a good experience for us, and it, it instilled confidence in us for the movie's production. 
cheated death again two years later while flying an experimental device designed to simulate a lunar landing. When it malfunctioned, Armstrong was sitting at the controls. He ejected barely a hundred feet from the ground. And if you didn't get out, that would have been your life. Um, yeah, probably would have. Yet somebody told me that after that happened, when it was all over, you went back to your office and sat down to do paperwork. That's, that's true. I, I did. There was, there was work to be done. Wait a minute. You were just almost killed. <laughs> oh, but I wasn't. July 16th, 1969. Apollo 11 upon a Saturn V rocket, the biggest ever made. You know, this is a few weeks before Woodstock, a very divisive time in our country. But we have this just restorative and, and just such an amazing human event. And they blast off on July 16th, 1969, at about 9.30 in the morning. 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program which puts Apollo 11 on proper heading. The flight to the moon takes about three days. And they approach on Sunday, July 20th, 1969. It's about 5 p.m. Eastern on Sunday when they near the lunar surface. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong in what they called the Eagle, the lunar landing module, they begin to make their descent. Neil realizes that, that the guidance system is taking them into a, what he described as a boulder field. It was the crater, he said, the size of a football stadium you know, with boulders in it the size of cars. And that's when the test pilot, Neil Armstrong, takes control. He decides to land it in a different area. He takes control of the capsule. You, and we're going to play you that, that approach. And we're going to play it you know, from mission control and really what people on television heard that afternoon, early evening on Sunday, July 20th. You'll hear fuel calls in the background, 60 seconds, 30 seconds. They try to stay off the comms because they don't want to pressure Neil, but the gas is getting low. They're running out of fuel. If they drop the vehicle, you know, it could be damaged. They could be stuck on the moon. They might have to abort the mission altogether. And all the while, there's all these alarms going off inside the vehicle. Um, they're calling back to mission control to, to try to explain that. Um, you know, Greg said that maybe they did have a little more fuel, maybe 20 seconds more after the countdown hits zero, which it definitely did by the time they touched around. We're going to listen to what it sounded like on TV, what it sounded like in Mission Control, and what it sounded like inside the Eagle as Neil Armstrong takes control and tries to guide and be the first person to land on the moon. Something that people have dreamed about, looked up at the stars and thought about for thousands and thousands of years. He's going to be the one to do it if he can just get the Eagle down. Four forward. Four forward. Drifting to the right a little. Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward, just... Okay. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Out of descent. Coast control, both auto, descent, engine command override off. Engine arm off. 
413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. They didn't just walk right out. There's actually like a rest period that NASA had put in there where these astronauts are supposed to do some checks of the system. They're supposed to try and get some shut-eye. You know, obviously they really don't. Uh, and by now everyone's heard they've landed. And everyone who wasn't there in the afternoon, they're now rushing to their televisions as NASA announces that they're going to do the moonwalk. People run to friends and families and everyone's watching around the TV. And this is all over the world. It's not just an American moment. But that's how badass it was, that really only us, only the Americans, this off. I urge you to go watch the Mad Men episode, Waterloo. It's in the middle of season seven. Um, when but they do a great job of depicting what it was like for people to watch that moon landing line. At 9.55 Eastern Standard Time, Armstrong steps out of the eagle and begins slowly making his way down the ladder. We'll first listen to how it was, how it sounded on TV, and that's what this was—a was television spectacle. Everyone remembers where they were watching this. You know. Then we'll discuss with our panel. You know, did Armstrong misspeak when he made that famous line about one small step? Okay. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only pressed uh, uh, in the surface about. Uh, one or two inches, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. Boy, look at those pictures. Wow. It's a little shadowy, but uh, he said he expected that in the shadow of the lunar module. Armstrong is on the moon. Yeah, Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I think that was Neil's quote. I didn't understand it. <laughs> no, one small step for man, but I didn't get the second phrase. Some one of our monitors here at our space headquarters is uh, able to hear that. We'd like to know what it was. Surface is fine and powdery. I can, I can kick it up loosely with my toe. It does adhere in fine layers, uh, like uh, powdered charcoal, to the uh, to the sole and inside of my boot. His quote was, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I can see the footprints of my boots and the treads in the fine sandy particles. Hey, this is Houston. We're copying. 
Oh, thank you, television, for letting us watch this one. Isn't this something? 240 miles, 1,000 miles out uh, there in the moon, and we're seeing this history There seems being to be made. no difficulty in moving around as, as we suspected. Uh, it's even perhaps easier than the simulations of 16G that uh, we performed uh, in various simulations on the ground. Absolutely no trouble to uh, walk around. One of the great controversies of history. (laughs) And I I was just reading, they've analyzed now, gone back and analyzed the transmission. I don't know that we'll ever know, but it's a phrase that he came up with. I don't think anybody told him what to say, and I don't think anybody knew what he was going to say until he actually made that step. And the A, we like to to honor his intent because the intent was there for a man. Yes, the intent was there. And to be clear, so... uh, in the official transcripts in NASA, it appears as an A with parentheses. So just in case, uh, it, it satisfies both sides. Yeah. Armstrong and Aldrin spent two and a half hours about on the moon. Buzz joins them about 20 minutes after Armstrong steps off. It's actually Buzz's photo on the cover of our episode. If you look at our Ohio v. the Moon episode cover, uh, there really weren't very many pictures of Neil. Um, Buzz was running around doing experiments as as Neil, but really Neil took more of the pictures that picture that we that we famous one of them saluting the flag it's really a buzz and we asked the panel what were they doing while people on earth looked up and celebrated that sunday evening july 20th well they have a pretty delineated flight plan there are several things they want to do it's not going to be an extended uh expedition uh the the two primary goals of apollo 11 were to put boots on the moon and then by golly get home alive so they had two and a half hours to play with so they wanted to set up some experiments not a, not a ton of them. Uh, Buzz was primarily responsible for setting up these experiments or deploying them. Uh, so he had this, the solar wind composition experiment, which was a pole with a basically a fancy tinfoil sheet uh, that they would collect and bring back, uh, collect uh, samples of the solar wind. He had something called the ESEP, which was the Early Apollo Surface Experiments Package. And this contained two experiments. One was the PSEP, or the Passive Seismic Experiment, which he did uh, deploy. The second was the uh, laser ranging retro reflector, and don't ask me to say it again. Uh, so that was going to be used to actually measure the distance between the Earth and the Moon. In fact, it is still being used today. There were three of them deployed on the Moon's surface, the first one on Apollo 11. Right. Well, Buzz was busy doing these, and he would be the one to take the pictures of Neil, and he didn't have much time to do that. So most of the pictures were taken by Neil. Yeah. Uh, yeah this one thing that's always fascinated me is this laser reflector thing that was mentioned. It's kind of like if you're a golfer, you have your range finder, and a lot of times on the um, flag, there'll be a little uh, reflecting device, and that's exactly what this is. And yet today, as Greg just mentioned, I think scientists can have a laser pointed at that little reflector that they left there and, and still can measure the exact distance between the Earth and the Moon. And uh, to me, that's always been a fascinating thing, remnant that's still active from that mission. Yeah. 
So they, they're doing that. So Buzz is doing those things. Neil gets out. The very first thing he does is basically grab a, a contingency sample. It's just a small little bag on the end of a, of a, a handle. And they keep asking him to get it, too. Yeah. It's kind of like he, he's so wild by being he's on the He's so wild, like, yeah. Neil, where are we at on that contingency yeah. sample? Yeah, oh, so it took him a little longer than, than they thought it would. But he put that, puts that in his uh, suit pocket. And then uh, he goes about uh, photographing and also examining the lem. Uh, and the uh, surface area has to describe basically what the uh, surface of the moon, the regolith, or that soil looks like underneath the uh, uh, the rocket engine. And uh, uh, he needs to take a lot of photographs. So he's doing that. Uh, Buzz then comes out 20 minutes later. And Buzz has to do some of that inspection too. But Buzz, not only is he doing the uh, ESEP and the solar wind composition experiment, he's got to uh, collect a core sample, which is a documented sample. There were also bulk samples, which Neil collected and Buzz collected. Uh, in other words, there was no particular order or uh, intent in just, you just look down there and see a rock or a sample of soil and you just put, put it in a bag and uh, that's, that's what that bulk sample is. Uh, and then of course they had to erect the American flag, uh, which is a three by five. Um, and they had to have a small uh, conversation or short one with President Nixon. So they did that. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President, this is Houston out. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made from the White House. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you have done. For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure that they too join with Americans in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done. And one in our prayers that you will return safely to earth. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but men of peace of all nations and with interest and a curiosity and and with a vision for the future. Uh, honor for us to be able to participate here today. And thank you very much, and I look forward, all of us look forward to seeing you on the Hornet on Thursday. They blast off and reconnect in lunar orbit with the Columbia, with Michael Collins. And they make their trip back to the Earth. And they land in the Pacific Ocean. They're swept up by the Navy, put on the USS Hornet. And they land at the just fanfare. Neil Armstrong is the most famous person in the world. And what do you think the first thing they do, him and Collins and Aldrin when they land, splash down in the ocean, they're quarantined and they're put into an Airstream. You know Airstream, those travel trailers are the aluminum rounded, like super distinct. Um, I love Airstreams. I love when I see them. They make me smile when I see them. I have some friends who have one. Uh, my aunt, when I go down and see uh, Miss Ohio View of the World, and I go stay in Cabo uh, on vacation, and I read all my history books on the beach, uh, my aunt lives down there. She's got an Airstream 
on on her property. She's got a nice house, but she's also got an airstream on top of the the little mountain that they live on. We actually sat down with the historian for Airstream, a great Ohio company in Jackson Center, Ohio, Northwest Ohio, really just down the road from Wapakoneta. We sat down with Samantha Martin to talk about the quarantine, the space cooties, the reason that they were in this Airstream. And they're there for almost three weeks. There's that famous picture that we'll talk about with President Nixon outside the Airstream and all three of them laughing through the window. And we'll talk about the MQF, the mobile quarantine facility that the astronauts spent 17 days in upon landing. MQF, yeah. So um, MQF stands for Mobile Quarantine Facility. And so as NASA was um, working on the moon landings, um, there was a concern of lunar contamination. And so an agency was formed um, called the Interagency Committee on Back Contamination. And it was a group of organizations concerned with public health. And so they determined that they wanted to um, keep the astronauts quarantined. But in the meantime, from the landing in the ocean to the lunar receiving laboratory, they were looking for a mobile quarantine unit. And so NASA um, contracted with um, Melpar Inc., who then subcontracted with Airstream to build a total of four MQFs. Um, They were essentially modified Airstream trailers. They were 35 feet long and adapted so that they could be transported on the ship and the cargo plane. And then so it was a sealed aluminum shell with um, exhaust fans and filters that allowed for a negative pressure Um, internal negative pressures for biological isolation. There was a decontamination transfer lock to allow for the astronauts to send out the samples and films that they had collected. And other than that, there were um, living facilities, as you'd find in a standard Airstream at the time. Um, There was a kitchen, a bathroom, um, a microwave, but instead of where the credenza normally was, You had a medical examination table, and it was situated to fit up to six people for five days. So what was what was their fear? I mean, I I know I I use the the joking term space cooties, but was it just they just didn't know? Yeah, I guess it was more fear of the unknown in that perhaps if there was some unknown bacteria that the astronauts could then bring back and no one here would have built up immunity to that. It was the concern of how to, to keep them quarantined to make sure that didn't happen. And uh, the MQFs were used for Apollo 11, 12, and 14. And after Apollo 14, it was determined that that wasn't really a threat. And so the, the program was abandoned at that point. Um, what are they, you know, what are they doing? How are they entertaining, you know, the Apollo 11 astronauts that are in there for almost three weeks, right? Yeah, well, so they had, you know, comfortable lounge areas. They had um, bunk beds, and it was the uh, three Apollo 11 astronauts, but also their surgeon and the um, one of the program engineers in there with them. And so they ate, they slept, they worked on reports, um, kind of talked about their experience, um, met with President Nixon. 
And that's right outside of the uh, MQF as the three of them are kind of peeking out of the, the rear window. Thanks so much to Samantha for joining us from Airstream. They are doing a big expansion. They're going to have a welcome center and, and museum. The actual MQF Airstream that Neil Armstrong was in is still on loan and display to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in D.C., one of my favorite museums in the country. And you can go check it out there. They're released in August. They go on a massive world tour, a ticker tape parade through New York, just like you'd imagine it from back in the day. State dinner with Nixon and leaders in, at the White House in D.C., another great parade in Chicago, and later that day off to Los Angeles. And then they go on a world tour. We asked Brittany Venturella, the interim director, to, to tell us about you know when Neil uh, goes on that world tour. But first, he comes back to a parade in Wapak in September of 1969. One of our highlights, I do want to mention before their international leg, would be them returning to, or Neil returning to Wapakoneta, his hometown. And it would have been on September 7th. He participated, he and his family would have went down Auglaize Street, our historic through our historic downtown, through crowds of people. You would have had banners saying, welcome home, Neil, all across the town. And... Bob Hope was and his wife were also there. They were the Grand Marshals. We had Albert Sabin, the inventor of the polio vaccine, Ed McMahon, and they were all joined in the celebration. Also, Governor Rhodes was here, and as well as the OSU marching band. Nice. So <laughs> that was a nice, yeah. So that's only in really weeks after they got out of. Uh, Yes. Got out of quarantine, yes. Yes. And so they also would have then participated in speeches at the Auglaize County Fairgrounds, which is also in Wapakoneta. So it was a very large celebration. And then at the end of the month, they would have started the International League. So by the time they got done with all of these celebrations, they would have visited six continents, if you include the United States and North America. And some of the highlights, we, we always hear about the parades and touring through the, the cities, as well as meeting world leaders, the Pope, uh, royalty. Queen Elizabeth, and, I think. Yeah. Correct, yes, and, and the other, other members of the royal family. But there's some other things that are maybe not known as much. Uh, for example, in Turkey, they laid a wreath out of World War I. Memorial. They laid a wreath in Berlin at the Berlin Wall to commemorate those who did not survive their attempt to cross the Berlin Wall. But then they also did some fun things as well. They went grouse or bird hunting, duck hunting. They also participated in Zaire uh, in a moon ball where they were treated to traditional dancing as well as dances that the people there actually choreographed for them in honor of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And they also then got to partake in general dancing as well. So it was a wide range of activities. Um, there, you know, Neil's given speeches at all those types of events as well. I mean, it had to be exhausting. Yes, yes, definitely. And a lot of stops, so 23 countries. I, 
Just say, I think I might be the only one at this table that was actually there at the uh, parade where he, I don't think you were born. <laughs> no, my mom and dad didn't want to come down here for the, for the uh, traffic. But so I, I was so. in uh, college and uh, I was here uh, for the parade. Yeah, it was a huge parade. There, there was another, you know, when he went on the Gemini mission, uh, some people forget that. There parade. was another huge parade. I actually marched in that as a member of the St. Mary's marching band. Oh, really? <laughs> I was still in high school then. And, and that would have been 66. Yeah, in 66, I, I think it was a senior in high school sure. uh, or maybe a junior. But yeah, our band came over from St. Mary's and we marched and they prayed honoring Neil when he returned from the Gemini. And I think that was pretty standard, you know, for John and Glenn. I, again, uh, these people, the Gemini astronauts, the Apollo astronauts, uh, they were heroes. There were lots of articles in the mass publications about their activity. They were treated today like movie stars, we would celebrities. It's sad that we have to even do this, but we'd regret if we didn't discuss, you know, the conspiracy that surrounds Apollo 11. And did Neil Armstrong really land on the moon? These conspiracies, you know, they don't answer whether, you know, Apollo 12 or 14 or 15 or 16, if they landed, it's really about Apollo 11. The one that was the first one. You know, it's sad that we've gotten, you know, if you've gotten upset about the baseless claims of conspiracy, please go on YouTube and watch Buzz Aldrin punches one of these Apollo 11 truthers right in the face. The guy's harassing him at a hotel. It's fantastic. You really should go watch it. Just Buzz Aldrin punches man would, would be enough to find it. But this BS about the flag and the shadows and the different, you know, the lighting and all, all that's can be very, I think, easily explained and understood when you understand the different planet that they're on. They're on the moon. It doesn't always play by the exact same shadowing and lighting rules you know, that we have here. And with the gravity situation and the atmosphere, I mean, all that stuff can be explained. Not to mention the tens of thousands of people around the globe that worked on this project. Not a soul has come forward saying it was a hoax. Sadly, we had to ask our panel, and they give some new piece of proof I never really thought about, um, after we discuss some of the, you know, the more obvious ones and debunking the conspiracy theories about Neil Armstrong and Apollo 11. One of them is that of uh, the uh, laser reflector that they put on there. I mean, you couldn't get that bouncing back from a laser unless they had actually physically placed that on the moon. So in my mind, that's always been one of the key, uh, if you want evidence for doubters, uh, that that's... Uh, used to sell on a daily basis, I assume, by some, you know, scientists. Mm -hmm. that's, just, that's just one, one of the many um, good, good arguments. Uh, some people might say, well, uh, how do we know that some unmanned spacecraft didn't land it there? Well, honestly, if we could land an unmanned spacecraft there and place that there, why, why couldn't we put a person there? Um, another couple of, the, of good uh, examples of, um, I should say, countervening um, evidences are the massive amounts of rocks that we brought back. The lunar samples we brought back total over 800 pounds of rocks and soil. And some people might also say, well, how do we know they're not just faked or how do we know that they're real lunar samples? Well, lunar samples aren't the same as Earth samples. Uh, there are several major differences. Uh, we don't have sedimentary rocks on the moon. Those are created by flowing water. Uh, lunar rocks uh, are an anhydrous, that is, they don't have water in them. They typically don't contain quartz, calcite, magnetite, amphiboles. Uh, they don't contain micas, um, and uh, earth rocks do. 
many, many earth rocks do. Uh, so that's kind of another example of, of something I would use. And after 40 some years and nobody has stepped forward and said we, we didn't go, uh, anyone who was a part of that program has maintained that that actually happened. I think that's the strongest. It's well, really difficult to imagine. You know, anybody who has studied the career and life of Neil Armstrong would quickly believe that he would absolutely not take part in any su such. No. He wasn't that type of individual. If anybody, like, you know, the term Boy Scout comes to mind, was he, he wouldn't be involved in any program that was a fake. No, I can't. And just the tens of thousands of people who worked on it, right? Right. right. Absolutely. And you had people across the nation involved in this. All of these companies, some of the ones we were mentioning before, to be that elaborate and also that expensive of a project. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for it to be a hoax is uh, just, for me, unbelievable. It's absurd. Yes. It's absurd. still with NASA, the world tour ends, and he's still one of the most famous people in the world. Certainly, I think, the most famous Ohioan when it's all said and done. But he was also an introvert. You know, he didn't seek the limelight and, and all the attention, the speeches he had to give on all these tours and interviews. You know, it's not what he wanted for him or his family. And you know, he walks away. And could I ask myself sometimes if I could have done that? You know, I, or if I would have just opened a burger chain, you know, Space Burgers and, or if, you know, I don't know, done commercials and, and just moved to L.A. and New York and been a celebrity and lived that life. I think Neil Armstrong, honestly, for a while could have done that. He was that big. But Neil bails, and he walks away from NASA in 1971, and he moves back to Ohio. He moves down to Lebanon, Ohio, buys a farm with the kids and Janet. And in 1971, he takes a job. He becomes a professor. And he leaves the public eye at the height of his fame. But he was offered his professorship at University of Cincinnati. He left uh, NASA and became a professor between 71 and 79. That was something, as we've researched and seen, or read, excuse me, they would, that was an interest of his from before yeah. as well. So it wasn't just a um, uh, pop-up, oh, that's great. That's something he's, he was what did he teach? interested in. Aerospace engineering. Well, that makes sense. Okay. Yes. I wasn't a history teacher, no. <laughs> Neil didn't like how the space program stalled. He thought for sure we'd be on Mars before the end of the century. People living on the moon, the space stations in, in the sky, in, in, in the space. He, doesn't, he stays involved. He's, he's the co-chair of the Rogers Committee that investigates the Challenger disaster in 1986. Uh, he stays involved with, with NASA and with Purdue. Um, but he would have been saddened, and he was saddened, um, you know, by the lack of, of sophistication we have in 2018. When Neil passed away, he'd written an open letter about his frustration with the government and, and people losing interest in, in what he deemed to be a very worthy pursuit, something important to, to the human experience. Now, that being said, we do play this clip uh, just from a few months ago. And we may have a new president, we may have a president who's has some interest in space. Yes, we're talking about Space Force. 
My administration is reclaiming America's heritage as the world's greatest spacefaring nation. The essence of the American character is to explore new horizons and to tame new frontiers. But our destiny beyond the Earth is not only a matter of national identity, but a matter of national security. So important for our military. So important. And people don't talk about it. When it comes to defending America, it is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. So important. Very importantly, I'm hereby directing the Department of Defense and Pentagon to immediately begin the process necessary to establish a Space Force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. That's a big statement. We are going to have the Air Force, and we are going to have the Space Force, separate but equal. Say what you will about Space Force. It's, um, <laughs> it's pretty, it seems like a silly name. Um, but I am one for space exploration. You know, and Neil faced down these arguments in, in before his mission. Why should we be paying for this? Why should, and he's asked, and, and he talks about because it's important. Neil Armstrong lives out his life in Southwest Ohio, in Lebanon, in Cincinnati for the rest of his life. He's involved in a lot of boards and charities, and like we said, Purdue and NASA, um, and events, and he passes away in 2012. He was an American hero. And what he did in 1969, it, Brittany, you know, we talk about all these, these moments that you remember where you were. Pearl Harbor, the JFK assassination. My generation, it's 9-11. You remember where you were. Brittany talks about how those moments were all tragedies, but not Apollo 11, not Neil Armstrong in this great adventure when man landed on the moon. Think about, a lot of people ask where, where were you when something happened? And when we think about that in history, it's a lot of tragedies. However, this was one event that brought the world together for a success and a great achievement and that many people across the world joined in to make sure that could happen. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation, guys, is, is First Man by James Hansen. The movie is based on this book. There's a lot of great books I've read. Um, a lot of great documentaries you can watch from the Earth to the Moon. I think I was originally on on HBO, uh, Tom Hanks produced great documentary series. Um, but go see First Man. It's really a book recommendation and a movie recommendation. They made a, a feature film about Ohio history, and it is, like I said, really well done. 
by director Damien Chazelle. You know, a great performance by Claire Foy as Janet Armstrong uh, and Deke Slayton, played by one of my favorite actors, Kyle Chandler, uh, from Bloodline. And, you know, he's also in Wolf of Wall Street. He, he was the coach in Friday Night Lights. Awesome actor, really does a lot of cool stuff. Um, so go see that movie. Our schedule, we're going to have another episode next Friday, the 19th, same day as our launch party. Uh, that'll be episode two. We'll be talking about bootlegging, Ohio versus bootlegging. We'll be looking at Prohibition, the king of the bootleggers, George Remus from Cincinnati, Ohio. An incredible story. Um, and we'll talk about Prohibition uh, again in the state of Ohio. That's one of our most listened to episodes. And we go down to Cincinnati um, and really have a great episode there. And we're excited to bring that to you next Friday, which is also, again, our season three launch party, live band karaoke, dinner, drinks. It's Columbus Italian Club, October 19th, 7 o'clock till question mark, 7 to 11-ish. Um, but we'd love to have all our friends down there, all our listeners. Feel free to bring any of your friends. Again, it's not going to be a real history-centric night. It's really more of a party um, just to celebrate uh, the new season of Ohio v. The World. Uh, rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever else it is. Our biggest thing, guys, is just word of mouth. Tell your friends. Share this episode on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we have a Twitter page now at Ohio v. The World. Um, We've got an Instagram, Ohio v. The World podcast. And, and check us out on Facebook or email us. you got a show idea, World at gmail.com. Moving forward. We will be doing episodes and dropping them on Sundays. Just these first two will be Fridays because um, we want to get content out to you guys here at the beginning. And then it will be every other Sunday from there on moving forward. Um, and we're looking forward to being with you all the way through the spring of next year. So thanks for listening to episode one. We'll see you guys next time for Ohio versus Bootleg.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.